A Christian view of politics, though, begins with pretty simply. As complicated as that question is, it begins pretty simply. And that is, Jesus is king. And you recognize that Jesus is king of king and lord of lords, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And yes, he did say, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. But as the Jews listening would have known, Caesar is made in God's image. Caesar is one of God's things, right? Welcome to Grace in 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program today. Ask yourself the following questions. Do you talk about welfare reform while also giving to the needy in your church? Do you proclaim that all lives matter and also have friends who look very different than you? Do you speak out against abortion, but also embrace and assist the single mothers in your church? Do you share your political opinions on social media while also joyfully sharing the Lord's Supper with church members who disagree with you? And do you call for immigration reform, but also warmly welcome foreign visitors to your church? Today's guest posed these questions at a conference earlier this month focusing on the relationship between Christians and politics. Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director at Nine Marks, an organization that equips church leaders with resources for building healthy churches. He's also an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church in suburban Washington, D.C., and he's the author of How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics for a Divided Age. He joins us today to talk about Christianity and politics. Jonathan, welcome to Grace in 30. Uh, thanks for having me. If you're yeah. reading those questions, I'm like, now those sound familiar. Yeah, that's right. Just three or four weeks ago, you were, you were mentioning that. So I love the questions. Um, so I just want to kick off with a broad question here. What is a healthy biblical view of Christianity and politics? Oh goodness! I mean, that's that's huge, right? I th I think, I think a a Christian view of politics though begins with pretty simply. As complicated as that question is, it begins pretty simply, and that is, Jesus is King, and you recognize that Jesus is King of King and Lord of Lords, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And yes, he did say, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. But as the Jews listening would have known, Caesar is made in God's image. Caesar is one of God's things, right? Uh, you don't have two completely separate circles there. You have a big circle inside of a little circle. A big circle, God's things. Inside of that, a little circle, Caesar's things. And so sure enough, Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. So a Christian view of politics has to begin with the idea that Jesus is king over everything. Now from there, just one more thing, from there we have to ask, okay, what did Jesus authorize uh, in terms of state and in terms of ch church, or, or, or rather who did he authorize whom to do what? He authorized the state to bear the sword. He authorized the church to bear the keys. Those are separate authorities. So Jesus is king over everything, but he's king over everything in different ways, right? And part of a Christian view of politics is recognizing what's a Christian view of the state, what authority did God give to the state, what authority did he give to the church. And then finally, what is, what's the difference between me as an individual Christian, what I'm called to do, and what my local church collectively is called to do? These are some of the basic categories we need to start with, with a Christian view of politics. Yeah, you mentioned um, during the discussion, you said, I affirm the separation of church and state 
but not, not the, the separation term. of I, I advocate for it. Okay. <laughs> go on. Go on. So you advocate for the separation yeah. of church and state, but not the separation of religion and politics. So why do you say that? Well, that's right. Well, because uh, the separation of church and state is is about authority. It's about institutional authority. What authority to give to the state? What authority to give to the church? We just talked about religion and politics. However, are different ideas. Okay. Uh, in one sense, you could say all of life is religious. In fact, I would even say, and I say in my book, when people enter into the public square, they don't leave their religion behind. They say they do, but nobody does. Whether you're whether you're a you're there to advocate for abortion or same-sex marriage or environment or tax policy or federal funding for national parks, you have a certain view of justice that you're trying to advocate for in the public square. And what's behind that view of justice? Well, it's a worldview. What's that worldview? What's your belief about God or gods or you know big G, little g? So there's a sense in which your politics, my politics, everyone's politics, the atheist politics is invariably, inevitably religious. I'm making a descriptive claim there. I'm not saying you should leave your or you shouldn't leave your religion behind. I'm saying you can't help it. And uh, Ed, you might remember the story I told in in the, in the conference a couple of weeks ago about Senator Feinstein saying to judicial, uh, a circuit court nominee, Amy Barrett, she said, uh, your dogma, says the senator to the nominee, your dogma lives loudly within you, meaning she was a Roman Catholic and she was saying, I'm worried that your Roman Catholic dogma is going to affect how you do jurisprudence. Well, what's the response to Senator Feinstein? Well, it's the same, ask the same question back. What, your your dogma doesn't live loudly within you too? Everything you do, Senator Feinstein, is backed by a dogma. So, yeah, that's the religious side of things. We, we could go over to the church and we could, we could talk about how the church too is political, if you want to double-click on that one. So all of life is religious. All of life is political. But that's not the same thing as the separation of church and state. You recently posted something on uh, the web where you you were focusing on the blind alliance to party positions. And oh. uh, you, you sort of written about these pr- political positions too often match point by point sort of the well-defined collections of belief either on the left or the right. And, and I'm going to quote you here. You wrote, perhaps this is my own idealism, but I'd like to think that working from Scripture would yield some unexpected combinations, like someone who staunchly is both pro-life and pro-reparations or pro-traditional marriage and pro-environment. And why have we gotten to this state where it, it is so extreme, where there's allegiance to all the bullet points on either the left or the right, especially in the body of Christ? Well, there's a lot of thing, reasons why well, we've gotten to this to this point. Uh, you know, it would take a good historian to lay them all out. I mean, on the one hand, I want to say parties are a good thing, right? Democracy depends on working the parties. There's no way you're going to find enough people who agree with you on everything that you can form a majority and pass legislation. So parties are necessary for people with diverse interests, but enough overlapping interests they can come together and and you know make laws that are that are good for for people. Uh, so parties aren't in and of themselves necessarily a bad thing. What can be problematic is, is, is partisanship, where I begin to think only by according to what my party says is best or only according to my tribe. And I think there's a number of other things going on at this moment. I think identity politics you know, plays a, as a significant role in the, the growing, uh, let's call it tribalization of the American Republic, where people's identities according to this or that category or even overlapping categories 
becomes the basis out of which their political beliefs and political activity emerge. So it's not that I have a, uh, you know, a, a, a larger view of, of, of what's good for the nation with this or that. Rather, I'm in politics to express what's good for my particular group, right? And I do all I can to advocate and give, uh, create conscientiousness for my particular group. Well, when I'm advocating only for my group, only for my tribe, you inevitably have a, a growing division between one tribe and another. So th that, that'd be one thing. Um, I think growing forms of populism is, is, is its own kind of identity politics. We, we could look at that. Um, well, you know, if, if, if they're, you're a Christian listener, you, you know, you might think about the fact that America increasingly is moving away from certain Christian-ish perspectives. Well, what's replacing it? Well, a host of things is replacing a Christian moral worldview. And that inevitably means there's just going to be more bickering inside the inside the republic. So yeah, we could we could point to a bunch of things that I think got us to our present moment, um, and it's it's something to keep thinking about. So I want to make sure we talk a little bit. I want to get to what you do uh, with Nine Marks and what you do with your your book and your writing. But you mentioned uh, at the conference, you said at one point that the church should be a political threat, and you said you know not in the sense of an invader or an insurrectionist but more like a virus or termites, something to choose away. And, and boy, I, I thought, you know, now a month later, look at where we are. The word virus kind of leapt out at me today when, when I listened to your speech. And, uh, but explain what you meant by that. Thank you. I'm drawing from Acts chapter 19 where uh, the silversmith, I can't think of his name, uh, is— Demetrius. Uh, what's that? I think it's Demetrius. Demetrius, that's it. Demetrius is objecting to the fact that Paul's preaching is hurting the silver shrine industry. Uh, sales are drying up because Paul and his, his followers are out preaching this gospel and people are no longer buying idols uh, uh, dedicated to Artemis. And so what's going on is as Christian belief and as the you know the the, the gospel mission of, of Jesus as Savior and Lord goes out, idolatry is threatened, and that idolatry unwraps or uh, unravel plays out both economically and politically. So it's not that Christians try to topple the market. It's not that Christians throw a revolution or invade a nation. Rather, what Christians do, and they do this in China, and they do this in Iran, and they do this in the United States of America, which is why we're a political threat in all three places. What they do is they preach against idols, and specifically the idols that prop up the nation, idols that prop up the market. And so when, you know, congressmen have Artemis factories in their district, and they have lobbyists lobbying for, for, for uh, you know, the, the Artemis industry, they're going to impose the Christians who are preaching against the goddess Artemis. And uh, so it's, it's in that sense we are a threat. Uh, and this inevitably has political consequences. So the good news, how do you feel about the virus and, and you know, sort of that analogy? Is that something well, well, you're going okay. to stop it's using? Probably, probably not the best timed analogy. Keep in mind, I wrote this book a couple of years ago. I wasn't, was not envisioning the, the pandemic at the moment. But it is a... Yeah, it's a provocative analogy right now, that's for sure. So you mentioned you were emphasizing during your, uh, your, your speech the importance of the local church. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, and it came out those questions that you brought up at the beginning, Ed. Um, I mean, you know, imagine I'm, I'm uh, out there teaching on parenting, 
And meanwhile, if you if you walk into my home and you you see my my kids are miserable and I'm I'm I sh- I'm shouting at them and screaming at them. I'm you know even abusive. You would say to me, Jonathan, what what are you doing out there teaching on parenting and these little seminars that you give on parenting? That makes no sense. And one of the one of the things that I argue in the book is that Christians need to, uh, to I use the phrase, we're, we're to be before we do. We're to be a, a place of justice and righteousness before we turn to the nation and advocate for justice and righteousness. You know, you think of John Winthrop's famous phrase about the nation as a city on a hill, and that was picked up by Kennedy and Reagan and presidents ever since were a city on the hill. Well, who's the city on the hill according to Scripture? It's not the nation, it's the church. Or, you know, you think of Martin Luther King's famous words about little black boys and girls sitting down with little white girls and boys, you know, his, his dream of, of this happening. Well, where should that dream first take place? In the church. Uh, last example, think of, think of Lincoln in his second inaugural talking about achieving and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Beautiful phrase. Achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace with ourselves and among all nations. Where should that happen? Well, it should happen first among those who are called to make disciples of all nations, right? That justice and that peace and righteousness should characterize our local churches. We should be living it out practically with one another, with the widows, with the orphans, with people who look like me and people who don't look like me, with the rich and the poor. And so if if you love politics, if you're all about MSNBC or Fox News, you know, and you rage about what's going on in the nation on this side or that side, but you're not taking the time to pick up, you know, an older lady who can't drive to church. You're not taking the time to pick her up to bring her to church. It's like you don't understand politics. You don't understand religion either, perhaps. Um, You know, if if you're not caring for, for the hurting in your church, then, then why why do you think you're qualified to tell what's best for caring for the hurting in the nation? So in that yeah. sense, I'm calling the church to more integrity, you might say. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, this is the thing that really made me sit up when you spoke. I, I loved your entire presentation, but when you pose those questions, it, it just really hits home because we're, it's, we, you know, it's, frankly, it's the plank spec thing, right? We see so, things yeah. in other people and we're so busy trying to change them and, and we've got this massive plank hanging out of our cool. eyes. And we, we don't see it. We don't focus on it. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. So you've called yourself, when you started the presentation, you called yourself an academic egghead, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. What did you mean by that? And maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and then, you know, how you came about doing the work you're doing at Nine Marks. Sure. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I've always been interested in politics, love politics, worked intern for my congressman in college and was a political science major and went overseas and did did internships and then some work both in the House of Commons and the European Parliament and then came and started studying politics, did a master's in political theory. But it was it was while I was actually it was after I was I was doing my political theory master degree. Uh, I moved to Washington, DC to get a job and worked as a magazine editor for a time. And it was then that I think I became a Christian. And you could say my politics radically changed because I realized, hey, Jesus is king over everything. And so at that point, I decided to go to seminary. I got an MDiv, my second master's degree. And after that, I went and got another degree, a PhD in political theology, basically. Wow. And um, so a lot of my thinking and writing over the years has converged on precisely these things that we're talking about here. 
Um, at the same time, I'm dedicated to local church. When I, when I became a Christian, I felt called to ministry. And I thought I was going to go preach. I wanted to be a full-time preacher. Yet the Lord used my kind of political theory background and, and said, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the church. And, and most of my job at Nine Marks is talking about the church. But that inevitably has me involved in these other conversations about, okay, what's the church's place in the public square? What does it mean for Christians to be involved in politics? And so forth. So the academic Haighead remark came from the fact that more than once, Ed, I've had friends who have loved me by telling me, Jonathan, you sound too dense. Slow down. Uh, can you bring it down a bit? So I, I think I've just learned that about myself over the years. And I, I, I so, so tell, us about what, tell us about the work that Nine Marks does. I mean, you're trying to create healthier churches and really do it through biblically-led teachings, Correct. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Uh, Nine Marks is a website. It is a network of pastors. It is a bunch of books that we publish. Uh, Basically, we exist to equip church leaders with how to build healthy churches. Historically, uh, in the last last 30, 40 years, pastors and church leaders primarily have looked to the business community and business model for growing churches. And we exist to say, you know, there's things to learn there. But principally, we need to look to the Bible and see what it says about being a pastor, being a member, uh, how to practice these kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I, I'm the editorial director, which means I oversee all the content, whether on the website or in books. So I would have to believe that it, it, if I were to guess, one of the biggest, if not the biggest issues you've been focusing on heading into 2020 was the election coming up and this whole issue of you know, Christianity and politics. And so, you know, is that the biggest or one of the biggest issues? And secondly, you know, how are you addressing things like that in the context of this virus? I know things are changing really fast, you know, day by day. What, what are you doing? You know, how are you modifying or changing your teaching and your work in any way because of the virus? You know, besides sitting home with your kids and working in your uh, pajamas. Yeah, that's right. Well, in some ways, it's I don't know about you, but I've, it's like people aren't talking about the election nearly as much as I know we would have been otherwise because we're all talking about the virus. And so the, the conversation among pastors these days, whether you're on the pastoral listservs or you're seeing the emails or the conference, I was on a, you know, was a conference, Zoom conference call today with, with uh, about 20 pastors. Um, we're, we're just trying to figure out, okay, how do we best care for our members right now? That, that's, that's the conversation. Are you, are you live streaming? Are you... You know, are you, how are you doing evangelism? Uh, what are you doing with weddings? Um, you know, these, these are the kind of conversations that pastors are having right now. Ironically, at the moment, I've not heard many people talking about politics since this thing. I mean, Ed, here, you know, here we are at the beginning of April. This may all be different in a month or two months. I don't know. And two months ago, we were talking about politics. But right now, th- this is all we're talking about. Well, and, and look, I'll say this, kind of getting back to your original question. Uh, the political thing is a big deal. And I think a lot of pastors are feeling the pressure right now of how do I equip and disciple my congregation not to tear each other apart? Now, I mean, there's two kinds of churches, aren't there? There's, I mean, there's those with have those that are kind of uniform in their in their partisan leanings, you know, the strongly say Republican or strongly Democrat churches, and those pastors have one set of concerns. And then there's other churches that uh, tend to be more mixed in who's showing up, and and you know they're they're probably thinking a little bit more adamantly about division. Um, Andy Nacelli and I just wrote a little booklet called How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? That just came out. Short little, I don't know, 50-page booklet. How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? In which he and I were both feeling the burden, as a lot of uh, uh, pastors are feeling, uh, feeling the burden of 
growing rancor, growing divisiveness, growing bitterness inside of our churches as we move towards the election. Um, and I think when the pandemic is no longer headline, I think that will be a growing conversation. Uh, can I vote for somebody who's pro-choice? Is that a moral thing to do? Uh, how can I vote for somebody whose character I don't respect? Um, these, these are these are the questions, many of the questions that pastors are trying to address with their congregations while also respecting Christian freedom. I think that's another thing. We're trying to talk a lot about Christian freedom. Um, let, let, me, let me actually butt in here because you, yeah. you've made me think about something that I think is incredibly important and I never hear anybody talk about. I'm going to give you two ideas that I have. Okay. I, call, I call the first one the third option. People were talking about holding their noses when they were voting. They go into the booth and they, this guy's really bad, but I'm, I can't have her or, or vice versa. And I kept saying there's a third option. It's almost like there's fight or flight, but there's also standing in the face of injustice, maybe taking a licking, but shining a light on it, which is what Jesus did, which is what Gandhi and Martin Luther King did, modeling with Jesus. And I, I've been praying for three, four years for a Josiah. I, I keep wondering why aren't leaders around the country and the church calling us to repentance in the church? I mean, we're messing a lot of things up, a lot of deception and sin. I'm, I'm the top of the heap there. And why aren't they calling us together and saying, we can do better? We can go to God and we can petition him and say, we believe and we're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to make this a campaign over weeks and months where we ask you for no candidate is satisfactory, God. We don't like either one of these. We want someone who's truly Christ-like and who's gifted in administration and leadership. And, and I've just kind of been mentioning that to people here and there. What is your reaction to that? Is that something that you would you know, commit to thinking and praying about and maybe start challenging, you know, these organizations you work with to do. Yeah, it's, it's a great ambition. And I think, I think various individuals and organizations are doing that, some leftward leaning, some rightward leaning. I, I think there is some of that out there. Um, the, the, the harder question is, should churches as organized collectives, and especially their pastors, be getting up and becoming um, f sources for that kind of uh, political activity, that kind of, uh, hey, we're looking for a candidate that represents our interests. And some would argue, I, I might even argue, I don't know that the local church and its leadership, its pastors, should be in the business of political act advocacy in that sense. You see what I mean? Uh, you know, anytime you, you, you identify Christ, what, what, is, what is the church's job? One of the church's jobs is to identify uh, people and beliefs with Christ. So when you baptize people, you baptize them into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, nations of the earth, Ed, in his baptism, we are identifying him with King Jesus, right? And then you gather with the church and you take the Lord's Supper and affirm that you're a part of us. That's what we do. We put name tags. Church, churches put name tags on people, and same with doctrines. We say this is the doc, this is the gospel. We say this is the, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. These are the things that Christians, we as Christians, believe. You can see it here in our creed or in our statement of faith. Now, when churches collectively, with that same authority, start putting their name on candidates, think about what that does to the Christian conscience. So the the pastor stands up and says, "Vote for Joe." Well, pastor, are you are you saying that's the Christian thing to do? Are are you saying that I'm sinning if I don't vote for Joe? What what if I have different convictions? Do you are you sure from the Bible, Pastor, that I should vote for Joe? Is is that what the Bible tells you? And at that point, the pastor saying vote for Joe risks dividing his church over something that's not biblical. 
he risks putting the Jesus name tag on something that we can't be sure Jesus would put his own name on. A pastor can be sure about the resurrection. He can be sure about the gospel. He can be sure about pursuing justice. He can be sure about obedience. But how justice works out is invariably a question for wisdom. And that's where pastors and churches collectively together need to be very careful to make a distinction But what I call straight line and jagged line issues. I can unpack that if you want, but we make claims on straight line issues and we have to work hard at leaving and protecting a lot to jagged line issues. So, Ed, your, your, your basic proposal, is that something for you to do or Christians to do? Yes. Great. Go for it. Is it something for churches corporately, collectively to do? That's a different question. Am I making sense? Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I'd love to just talk and talk about this, but we're actually starting to time out. These half-hour interviews go really fast. I want to make sure I ask you at least— much. I want to make sure I ask you at least one question, which is I saw you posted something on Twitter about a guy who listened to, you know, 18 hours of sermons and no one really mentioned Uh-oh. the gospel yeah. or Jesus. So I, I want you to share with our listeners. I'm not going to be that person on this radio uh, recording. Share with us what is the gospel in a, in a minute or so and nice and concisely. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I mean, I think you just say God, man, Christ response. Okay. So God created us uh, good. Because God is good and he's holy and just and he created a perfect world. We, however, sinned against him and against one another. And the penalty of sin, Romans says, is death. And therefore, he cast us out of Eden and promised death for all those who do not follow him, who continue in their rebellion. Nonetheless, God made a way of salvation, uh, first through a people. And then when they demonstrated the same failure, finally in his son, the beloved son came. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that you and I should die, paying the penalty that you and I deserve on the cross, um, and then rose again from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, so that all repent who repent and believe and put their trust in Christ can have new life in Christ. And he's he's remaking a people for himself, uh, and, and one day he's going to remake the world so that all of us who are in him, united to him and united to one another, uh, can live this life eternally. One more question, say a minute or so. What is grace? Grace, well, I mean, the dictionary definition is unmerited favor, right? So I'm receiving favor from you that I did not merit, I did not earn it. Um, and the grace that we, we, we long for from God is the grace of his presence, the grace of a relationship, the grace of all of his blessings to those who put their trust in Christ. We can't earn that. We can't merit it. But it is a gift. Grace is a gift um, for those who look to the Lord. And I, I love the I love that illustration of of the lady who is reaching out for Jesus. She's been bleeding for thirty years, and she says to herself, "If I only touch the hem of my garment, uh, the hem of his garment, you know." And and she reaches out and she touches it, and, and she says, "Immediately, her bleeding stopped." Who is grace for? It's for those who just reach out and grab on to the hem of his garment and say, Lord, I need you. I've made a wreck of my life. Help me to follow you. I'm just holding on. Even if it's just with my pinky, I'm holding on. And we we receive his grace. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. If listeners want to find out more about Jonathan's work, please check him out on Twitter at Jonathan Lehman, and that's L-E-E-M-A-N. You can also visit uh, his website, ninemarks.org, and that's the number nine, M-A-R-K-S.org. This is Ed and Jonathan signing off from Grayson 30 
on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.